Uh, we are going to continue our study through the life of David. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 23 tonight. 2 Samuel 23. If you need a Bible, Zach will, or no, Keith will give you one. I couldn't tell with the lights. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Keith will get you one. Anybody need a Bible? Okay, over here. Over there. All right. Uh, now, you got your hand there. Don't read it. Look, look up here. Don't spoil it. Yeah. I want to read to you some things I pulled off the internet. Single phrases. Uh, this was said by George Washington. That's what he said. It was an amazing statement. <laughs> Caught the entire, entire Continental Congress off guard. Everyone in the room said, excuse me. <laughs> Good timing there, David Lane. No, George Washington said... Tis well. Uh, Stonewall Jackson said, Order A.P. Hill to prepare for action. Pass the infantry to the front rapidly. Tell Major Hawks, let us cross over the river and sit under the shade of the trees. Joan of Arc said, Hold the cross high so I may see it through the flames. John Kennedy said, That's obvious. P.T. Barnum said, How were the circus receipts in Madison Square Garden? Um, Beethoven said, friends applaud, the comedy is over. And then Jesus said, it is finished. So these were the last words of George Washington, Stonewall Jackson, Joan of Arc, John Kennedy, P.T. Barnum, and Beethoven and Jesus. Uh, I think of another one. There was a General Stilwell. He was observing the forces of the Confederate Army from a distance. He was a Union general. And his men were saying, sir, you need to take cover because the, the Confederate sharpshooters. And he said, they couldn't hit an elephant at this. Di-. And the bullet went through his head. That was his final words. Just thought I'd share that. <clears throat> um, what was it Frank Sinatra said? I'm losing? I think he said, I'm losing. It's interesting final words. We're going to see that tonight with David's life. It's his final words. Uh, General MacArthur addressed West Point um, when he was riddled with cancer, and he said, old soldiers never die, they just fade away. And it was a, um, a speech that was, it's still held in high esteem in West Point and through America. It's really well written. Um, and that was his goodbye to West Point, to the Army, as he prepared to die. But we're going to take a look at Second um, Samuel 23, it's actually David's uh, Hall of Fame for the guys that won the Medal of Honor. There were 37 recipients of, the, of this award of David's uh, mighty men. Uh, but before he goes into the listing of these mighty men, he spends seven verses sharing his final words. And they're fascinating, these seven, wor- or these seven verses, because um, only one other place in Scripture, and this is when... Um, uh, uh, the prophet was was to prophesy uh, Balaam, and uh, God took a control of his mouth, and he spoke. And the usage, it usually says, thus saith the Lord, <clears throat> but in this case, it says, David said. And he's, he's saying this um, being absolutely consumed by the Lord or the Holy Spirit. He is speaking on behalf of the Lord, but David is speaking. So it's the same thing that when Balaam spoke, he was speaking. It was his mouth, it was his heart, it, was his, it wasn't thus saith the Lord. 
uh, all the other prophets would hear from God, they would write it down, they'd say, thus saith the Lord, they would communicate that. But in this case, it embodied everything about David. And only three times in scripture is this phrase used, and David uses it twice. He's absolutely enveloped by the Lord, and he begins to speak. So these words are fascinating. In addition, you're going to see that how he declares himself. He, He titles himself the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's a, one who wrote most of the Psalms, uh, and Psalms are songs, uh, scripture and, and meditations and worship put to music, and, and this, is, this is David's life. He's the sweet psalmist of Israel, and this really would be his last psalm. It's his swan song. He, this is what he's singing, in a sense, before he dies, and it can be put to music. It's a beautiful seven-verse uh, final words, I guess. So let me pray and we'll take a look at it. <clears throat> Lord, we ask your blessing as we examine David's last words and examine our lives and in the light of your living word that's sharper than a two-edged sword, we pray that you'd speak to us and minister to us, put things into perspective. Lord, I pray that we would be touched by that and challenged and Lord, comforted as well. So we thank you, God, and we ask your blessing now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me... Uh, Let me read through it, and then we'll go through it verse by verse, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 23 of 2 Samuel. Now, these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me. There's that interesting phrase. And his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, order in all things and secure, another way to say that, ensure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. He will, will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall be as the thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. So anyone who doesn't think uh, of the doctrine of hell, even David understood this. We'll cover uh, this passage verse by verse, but I want to tell you how it ministered to me today. Um, uh, 16 years ago, I was 34 years old, and I was in San Jose, California, and on this day, uh, my son was born. I was 34, and now I'm 50, and Daniel's now 16. And uh, part of the day is we wake the kids up early, we sing happy birthday to them at an ungodly hour. They come out, <clears throat> open their gifts, we take them to breakfast. Uh, usually in, involves a lot of syrup, so the rest of the day shot. <clears throat> and then um, we, we took Daniel for his first flying lesson. He wants, to be, he wants to learn how to fly. And as I'm watching him walk the plane after he'd had his introductory lesson and he's walking the plane with the pilot getting ready for his first um, plane flight, um, it, a metaphor struck me. You know, he's preparing in time for, to fly solo, to fly solo. Now he has to be under the tutelage and the instruction of, of a master and somebody who's going to be a mentor with wisdom and instruction and understanding to guide and direct him so that the day comes where he's now permitted to fly solo. And the metaphor for life is, isn't that true of a 16-year-old? 
the idea of getting ready to fly solo. This is a stage in your life where your, your body is getting to a place where it almost seems as though you're immortal. You can run forever. You can play forever. Uh, you need very little sleep. You can eat anything, and it never affects you. You just stay fit and trim. And, uh, you know, this, this, is, this is the life of a 16-year-old, immortality. And, and to envision a time where you're going to be handed responsibility and that you're going to be over a family and one day you'll stand before a father of a daughter who's going to look at you and say, are you prepared to care for my daughter the way I have for this, this number of years? <clears throat> and my job is to make sure that when he's ready to fly solo and, and, and take the controls of, of that responsibility that he's ready to do that. And, and I reflected back, you know, I was 34 years old when he was born and I, I reflected back, my father was 34 years old when I was born. Uh, he turned 50 when I was 16. And um, I, I look at the contrast between Daniel and myself. Um, uh, when, when I was born in 1964, my dad was in the military, he's a naval officer. He did a lot of uh, overseas, uh, what they call Westpac cruises. He was in Vietnam for three tours. He was gone quite a bit. Uh, when he came back, he oversaw the uh, intelligence command over on Point Loma. He was always gone. After that, he started a business called Special Products, where they were part of inventing the taser gun and um, precision wheels for skateboards. They were the first to come out with those. And, and I, I never saw much of my dad. And I remember when I was 9 or 10 years old, my parents were in an awful automobile accident. And everybody thought they were going to die. And my older brother and my two older sisters, and there's a six or seven year difference, a gap between the kids and myself. I was kind of a surprised child. And um, they just kind of took over the house, and I thought mom and dad were going to die. And people kept bringing casseroles over, and the house was filled with food. And we weren't churchgoers, but it, I could see how um, my parents had made an impact in the community. And at that point, I kind of, when they recovered and I went to go visit them in the hospital, I almost didn't want to go in, but I'd kind of, I look at life that way. I just look at the worst case scenario, I embrace it, and then I'm ready to move on. And I had already embraced the idea that my parents were going to die. And from that moment on, every day I had with my parents was kind of like a gift. And they ended up living quite a while, and I was thankful for that. But it was always, I, I had already resolved that, that likelihood is, uh, I'm not going to get the same experience that my siblings got. Well, as a result, with my dad being gone, my mom kind of checking out after the three kids moved on to college. Um, you know, with the first child, when they're born, when the pacifier falls out of the mouth, you boil it and you put it back in. And, you know, you're, you're careful with everything with the child. And, and by the time the fourth kid comes along, it's like, go play in traffic, kid. I mean, who cares? And that's how it was with my folks. I'd come home at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning when I was in junior high school and, and I'd try to wake my mom up to tell her I'm home, and I couldn't wake her up. She'd be so sound asleep. They didn't care. I mean, it was just they didn't care. And I was on a rosy road to nowhere. And, and um, I, I was, I was going to get in a lot of trouble. There was a man by the name of John Probasco who helped me out. Uh, he saw that I was a wayward kid. I was living on the block, and he kind of became a dad for me in the absence of my own. Not that my dad was a bad man, he was just very involved, and, and uh, his, his business was struggling. It was from 1976 to 1980 when Jimmy Carter was in office, businesses were imploding. We thought we were going to lose our house. Uh, my dad lost the business. He ended up becoming a, a vice president of a bank and, you know, survived that way. I remember he ran for city council twice and lost. I thought how stupid politics are. Um, I just thought how, you know... I saw the heartache in my father's face. I thought, I'll never do this. I, I, and, and then finally, 
I was disillusioned and I, I was full of myself. Uh, and my brother was able to convince my dad when he came home one day to put me into swimming. Um, and I had had that summer with John Probasco. My dad forced me to go into swimming and that was it. I ended up, I uh, wasn't a great student, but I got a scholarship to a university and I got an education, I got a degree. Uh, and, and it changed everything. And through swimming, I came to Christ through first coach. I remember praying with me uh, in a hotel room after I had bombed in the junior nationals and then um, a series of events. And, you know, th- and I wasn't really sure if that was a profession of faith. I, I just was kind of going through the motions, wasn't sure about it. But really when it took hold of my heart was when I was at Fresno State and uh, ministered to by a man named Roger Manassian and his mother, Lydia Manassian, who was a, a survivor of the Armenian genocide, uh, the Turkish Holocaust, where they killed all the uh, Armenians, and uh, her ability to forgive. But I'm, I'm reflecting back and looking at my son, and I'm looking at my life, and I'm looking at my dad, and I'm looking at his life, and he's still living my mom's past. And now, as you know, my dad's in a home with Alzheimer's. Um, and the last time I went to visit him, about uh, two weeks ago, my, we thought he was going to die when I was in the Caribbean. Uh, my sister said, well, he's, he's come out of it. When I got there, we're walking in with my sister, and she says, Rob, be prepared. He, he was awful yesterday. It's going to be shocking to you. He's lost a lot of weight. He's, he might be in a wheelchair. He might be in the bed, but he's probably not going to be up. And um, he's not going to be who you remember, even from the previous visits. He's declining rapidly. I said, okay, Nance, you know, I embraced that a long time ago. And I walked in, and it's stuff like that just doesn't phase me. It's life. And I walked in, there was my dad. And contrary to what my sister said, he's just gotten a haircut. He's sitting in. A guy's playing a violin. My dad's enraptured with the violin. He sees us. He smiles big. He tries to talk. And he's smiling ear to ear. He gives me a kiss on the face, you know, and he's holding my head. And, and I thought, gravy. I mean, this is solid right here. And, and, but the thing I love every time I visit my dad, don't worry, we'll get to the text. The thing I love every time I visit my dad is his hands. His hands are remarkable. They, he hitchhiked across the country. He was born basically <clears throat> in the depression. Um, his father was an alcoholic, the town drunk. Um, he remembers everyone laughing, uh, everyone laughing at his dad when his dad was on the bridge staggering and they were on the church school bus. Uh, going to church camp, uh, town drunk. And, you know, my, my grandfather was a town drunk. My grandmother was the soothsayer. She'd read tarot leaves and tarot cards and read people's palms and fortunes. Um, and it was a rough home. They stayed together. My grandfather was a veteran of World War I and World War II. And, uh, you know, they, they traveled out here to California where my dad was born. And uh, my dad, at an early age, just took off. At, probably at 16 or 17, he hitchhiked across the country. And from that moment on, he just kind of found his own way. He was the first one in his family of all the kids to get a college degree. Rose to the rank of a, uh, of a, a flag officer in the United States Navy and decorated combat veteran and bank vice president and uh, Legion of Merit, Bronze Star, all kinds of accolades, president of the Rotary, And then this is the last thing. Reflecting on my father, he's not dead yet. Now his mind is dying quicker than his body is. But what I remember the most recently is when he was still living in the home where my mother lived 
He would take you on a tour of the house because he was trying to cope with the Alzheimer's, his short-term memory. So the way he'd do that is he had a gift of hospitality, he always did, and he'd take you on the tour of the house. Well, he'd, he'd take you on tour of the house and, and you'd always go upstairs and on the right side of the wall, and I've shared this with a number of you, on the right side of the wall were all of his accolades. You know, president of Rotary, on and on and on, vice president, all these things, Navy captain, all the commands he'd had, number of ships, he was written up in Time Magazine, um, McCoy's Navy, I mean, this, he had accomplished great things. All on the right side of the wall. On the left side of the wall were all the pictures of the family. When he'd take you on the tour of the house, he would never show you the right side of the wall. He would always show you the left side of the wall. When he was finished taking you on the tour of the house, he'd take you on another tour of the house. And then when he was finished, he'd take you on another tour of the house. He'd go, I've, I've done this, thank you, let's sit down. Because this, this was his mode of operation to try to cope. But he, it didn't matter if he went two or three times within the course of 10 minutes, he never showed you the right side of the wall. His swan song, his last psalm is his family. This, this to him is his life. And, and the last coherent words that he ever said to me as, as, as his son, um, he struggled that I went into the ministry and I left my career in sales. It, it angered him. And, and I had actually quit my job and went, moved to Fresno to enter into seminary and work at the Armenian church while he was on a fishing trip in Preschool, Colorado, where they had the old Korean War radio cell phones, you know, those big ones. And the reception was bad. That cut out as he was about to cuss me out and yell at me. And by the time he got back, I had already quit and moved. He said, you'll never provide for your family. You're going to ruin your family. To him, it was provision. That's all he had ever known. And I can tell you more stories about what a neat man he was, but he always saw that as provision. So he cut me off. My mom cut me off. They wanted nothing to do with me. Um, and they were true to their word. And we struggled. We were in basically Section 8 housing. We lived in the worst part of Fresno. And we made it. And I entered into the ministry. And, and um, he never really said anything about being proud of me in the ministry. He struggled with his faith. He came to Christ late in life through Father Michael Murphy and a number of other things. But I'll never forget, this was the last real clear conversation I've ever had with my dad. They were in a house in Coronado. We went to go visit him. My mother was seated here. Uh, Michelle and I were on a love seat. And my dad was here. Now, my dad, again, wouldn't engage in a conversation because he, he'd lose track of what it was about. And he, this was a coping mechanism. But what he would do is he'd get you a blanket or he'd bring you something to drink, a glass of water, because he was, he was always a consummate servant. And this is something he knew what to do. And this is the woman I serve and anyone she's with, I take care of. And so he's brought her a blanket and everybody has a banana and everybody's got a glass of water. I mean, we're loaded. <laughs> So he sits down in the chair, and my mother's here, and Michelle and my mother are having a conversation. I'm sitting here, and I, I don't want to look at my dad, because if I do, it's going to make him uncomfortable, like he feels like he's going to have to have a conversation. But I can tell out of the corner of my eye, he keeps staring at me. So I disengage from this, and I turn, and I look at my dad, and he's looking me straight in the face. And I look right back at him. And he says, um, what do you do? I said, well, sir, that's what we called him. Well, sir, um, I'm a minister. I'm a pastor of a church. You know, my son is a minister, and I'm very proud of him. Now, he had no idea he was talking to me. And I'm like, God, you rock. And you never wanted to say it, but Alzheimer's made you. <laughs> Boom, check. 
My dad was taking an assessment of his life and he loved his kids. Here with David, tonight for a moment, what is your swan song? Why are you here? And what legacy do you want to leave? With both Daniel and Michael, when I take them on a walkabout, one of the things I do when they turn 13 is I take them up to a cemetery and I say, you begin with the end in mind. This is the end of all things. This is where you'll end up. It's appointed once for a man to die, then judgment, you'll stand before God. So you begin with the end in mind. Now, how do you finish well? Any swimmer, any competitor, any runner begins with the end in mind. What does the the victory lap look like? You don't don't think of every grueling step. You, You envision the finish line. That's what every athlete trains for. That's what I would envision every time I'd swim a 500-yard race. I would, I would envision the finish line. What does the end look like? Start with the end in mind. I say that because David is such a great example for us to observe tonight. Because as I look around the room, we can all relate to him. This man was an epic screw-up. Some of you that didn't settle well with. <laughs> let's take a look. First of all, let, let, let's refresh some of the stuff we've learned. Tell me David's greatest victories. Huh? Goliath? Give me something else. Come on. He took, killed a lion, killed a bear. I mean, this guy's a warrior. Philistines? Yeah. To get Michal, his wife, he had to get a... 200 Philistine foreskins, they don't like to part with those easily, right? So, solid warrior, yes? Yeah? King? Judah? Jerusalem, he took it over. No no one had conquered Jerusalem in over a thousand years. He went up the water, he found a way. Built the city of David, expanded the boundaries of Israel further than anyone ever has. Greatest king of Israel, yes? Now, let's see how he describes himself in his latter days. Is he going to show us the right side of the wall or the left side of the wall? Here we go. Now, these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of who? How does he describe himself? That's my dad. I don't care who you are tonight and what a lousy dad you've ever had. It's ingrained in you that you need that blessing. And if your dad was awful, you need to reconcile that. That's the way we're wired. The anvil that sharpens us, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You can either either be embittered to your upbringing, or as God says in Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. Give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So you look at it and you say, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. His miserable life led me to this place. You You don't have to thank him for the pain. It doesn't say give thanks for, it says give thanks in. Yes? I, I, don't, I don't like what he did. I don't like any of that. But in that, I am here. In that, I am who I am. In that, God has shown me what I'm not to be. God has shown me areas. And if you can, it's like eating chicken. Eat the meat, spit out the bones. Reconcile, figure out a way to do it. Don't let them keep you in a prison of bitterness for the course of your life. He had every reason not to add, son of Jesse. 
He was, the, he was the least in Jesse's estimation. We studied this. Eight sons, he didn't even want to recognize David when Samuel came as Gandalf to anoint the next king of Israel. He went down every single son, and Jesse said, well, I guess he's not here. Do you have any others? Well, there's one, but he's the least in my estimation. He's out tending the sheep. That kid is whacked. Go get him. We won't sit until he arrives. And when he came running in as a ruddy little boy and they poured oil over his head, every one of them was looking and saying, who is this? David could have been embittered for the course of his life. He had this amazing ability to extend mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. David was merciful to his enemies. David was merciful to his friends. David was merciful because he knew of all people he needed it more than anyone else. And you want to live your life in judgment, be careful because to the level you judge, you will be judged. It will be meted out to you the same way. The only thing God doesn't tolerate in the life of his kids, and we've studied this in the life of Ahithophel and everyone else through the course of this study, is unforgiveness. He doesn't tolerate unforgiveness in the lives of his kids. You can't look at your parents and hate them for the rest of your life. I've told you this countless times. You don't get to pick the parents you get in this world, but you can pick the kind of parent you're going to be. If, 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 if anything, if, if the least you can get out of it is say, I learned from my parents what not to do, you're doing great. If you can thank the Lord for that, give thanks in all things. It'll do wonders for your heart. David, when he's defining himself, is not showing the right side of the wall, he's showing the left. And he says, first of all, I want to show you a picture I am David, the son of Jesse. That's my dad right there. He never came to my games. He didn't think much of me. By the time I was 16 years old, my dad had never come to one swim, swim meet. My dad was a mystery to me. I put nails under every car tire in the block in the fourth grade because I didn't have a dad. And I remember my mom telling me, when your father gets home, I had no idea what he looked like. He'd been gone for two years in Vietnam. I'd actually broken my left arm in a fight. And I remember thinking, well, he's not going to be able to beat me that bad unless he's cruel. And I remember when they called my father and he's coming down the hallway at Central Elementary School. And, and I had gotten in trouble because my fourth grade teacher had already put the nails under the car tires. My dad wasn't back. I was acting out. And, and I was supposed to bring a map book to school and my fourth grade teacher, he, he always had Jack Daniels in his pocket. He was a drinker and he'd cover the smell of the alcohol with Brut by Fabergé. I hate that smell. And I actually worked for the Fabergé company. I had to sell that. If you're wearing it, I love you, but get something else. I won't talk to you. And, and I didn't bring this map book and this guy in a drunken rage put his thumbs in my armpits and lifted me up to the lights and started shaking me in front of all the other kids mocking me. And I slapped him. I, I'm like, let's, let's do this. And I got sent to the principal's office, and there I am in the principal's office, and here comes my dad. And he's in his military uniform. He's Navy uh, uh, black uniform with the epaulets, and he's got the scrambled eggs on his cap and all the decorations from Vietnam walking down bigger than life and darkening the hallway. And we go in and we sit down, and I don't know this man. And I'm thinking, this guy's going to kill me, and then he'll resurrect me, and then this guy's going to kill me. And, and Mr. Lafferty's right there, and he's just raging. Your son is incorrigible. 
My dad stops. He says, son, what happened? He lifted me up to the light with his thumbs in my armpits. It hurt. He was shaking me. I didn't like it, so I hit him. He turns to the man. He says, you ever shake my son again, you're going to be dealing with me. The only one who ever touches him and disciplines him is me. Do you understand that? You could have heard a pin drop. And my dad had this stare. <laughs> the only other person I've ever seen has Don McClure. Just... <laughs> and the man froze. And the principal said, you need to apologize. He apologized. Now I'm the one who's in, and he says, let's go home, son. Went home. And uh, he says, I understand you put nails under all the car tires around. The... I did. Yes, sir. Why'd you do that? I don't know. And I was in the garage. I found this bag of Cadillac hood ornaments. Where'd you get these? I pulled them off the cars. I don't think you need to be doing that anymore. I think you're right, Dad. Okay. Come on, we got work to do in the backyard. That was my conversation with my dad. Now, all I know is I never wanted to hurt him again or let him down. And I was grateful for Mr. Probasco who'd walk me through this and respect and learning how to deal with authority. But here's the secret. My dad was bigger than life. When it comes time for me to walk somebody down the hallway, I don't care what's on the right side of the wall if there's anything at all. I want to be pointing to the left side of the wall. And that's my dad. That's my dad. And he says, thus says the man raised up on high the anointed of God, of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. I love my dad, and I'm a musician. Doesn't say anything about a king. He's raised up on high, but he stays away from all the accolades. David loved the Lord more than he loved being king. That says a lot for the man. If you were to define yourself tonight, do you define yourself by your positions, your possessions? passions. David defined himself, I'm the son of Jesse, and I love to sing songs to the Lord. And they call me the sweet psalmist of Israel, and that's what means the most to me. And then he decides, he declares, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. And so God enveloped me, and I want to share with you my last song. I'm the sweet psalmist of Israel. I want to share with you the last song God gave me. He says, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. God showed me this since I was a little kid and when the oil poured down my head that if I'm going to rule his people, I have to be just. And the only thing that I could apply in the entire equation was mercy because I knew I needed it and I knew God was merciful. So if I meted it out, I always knew I'd get it and there was nobody who needed it more than me. So I would say to the parents tonight, I guarantee you, you're going to screw up. Can I get an amen? I guarantee you already screwed up. Can I get an amen? amen. Meet out mercy and you'll receive as, as, as such. To the kids whose parents have hurt you, let me, let me give you an insight. That's all of us. We were once kids too. And you extend mercy to us, you'll get it when you're older. It's a great principle of the Lord. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. You want to be just? 
I'll tell you what, you know why David understood mercy? Because mercy triumphs over judgment. You want justice? You, you want justice? Or do you want mercy? Well, we want justice from people who've wronged us, but we want mercy when we wronged others. Love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. David got it. He who rules over men must be just. And here's the other aspect. This is a secret of David's swan song, ruling in the fear of God. Either, either you don't want the punishment of your parents or you don't want to grow up like them. But either way, you fear them. You respect them. They're there. They will always be there. They will always be your parents. Good or bad, that's who you got. And the reason why God says, children, obey your parents. It'll go well with you. You'll live long on the earth. Is because if you can learn how to submit to ungodly human beings, you'll have no problem submitting to God. Now, I'm not saying submit to them when they tell you to do something evil. I'm telling you, you know, I mean, you, you, you know that you can clean your room. I mean, even Jesus folded his clothes before he re- resurrected, right? He re- resurrected, folded his clothes, and then read that story. You can do these things. Verse 4, and he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises. A morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. This is the idea that if you do these things, you're always going to be shining before others. You'll always be a bright morning without clouds. Wasn't it just a beautiful day today? This is how you'll appear to others if you operate in the context of ruling justly and operating in the context of a fear of God. Not fear like I'm scared to death of what he's going to do to me. A complete respect that I don't want to let him down. I don't want to hurt him. This is what your life will be like. You'll be refreshing to others. There's nothing like a clear morning uh, when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. Isn't that one of the most beautiful things? I mean, the grass is so green and it's almost like it's just stretching to, to the heavens where once the rain had just come that satiated its thirsty soul and everything smells good and it's just delightful. That's you. However, the Bible says that a good name is like a precious fragrance, better is the day of a man's death than the day of his birth. Another perfect picture. You don't know what somebody's name smells like until they get to the end of their life. Either your name is a precious fragrance, like a, a, a morning when the sun is rising, when the clouds are not present and the tender grass is springing out and you can just smell it, and your name is fresh like that, or, or you're a stench. Ted Bundy, Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin, I can go on and on and on. That stinks. Nobody names their kids that anymore. Or you can be given a name that's a precious fragrance. Now, everyone in the room has got some sort of a stench attached to their name. You know how I know this? Because I happen to be your pastor, and if you're still here, you obviously know this. Why would you tolerate somebody like me in the pulpit unless you yourself are much like me? Amen? Yes. So I love what David says after he describes what a life is like of somebody who rules justly and rules in the fear of God. Watch what he says here in verse five. Pay attention because we need to hear this tonight. Although my house is not so with God. All right, now let's take a look 
at the ugly side of the left side of the wall. Adulterer, murderer, liar, awful father. Yes? That's David. We've read all about that, haven't we? And one of the reasons why we enjoy this study is because, wait a minute, David is a man after God's own heart. He's a sweet psalmist of Israel, and he's done this. He has done stuff that required death in Israel. And he saw God's merciful hand on his life from day one when he was pointing out that God raised him up on high. It wasn't supposed to be until the 10th generation that a Moabite was even allowed to rule in the kingdom, and David was only the third generation through, what, Ruth, is it? Everything about David's life was inundated with mercy. He was a screw up. And he says clearly, although my house is not so with God, he adds a word that tonight we need to embrace and be thrilled about if any one of us is a screw up. Ready? Look at it. Yet. Everybody say yet. Yet. I'm not there yet. So you screwed up today. You screwed up this week. You screwed up this month. Welcome to the club. What does the Apostle Paul say? Those things I don't want to do, those I do. Those things I want to do, those I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. He would go on to say, forgetting what is behind, striving for what is ahead, taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. This is the Apostle Paul. His wife had left him. He was in Ephesus, he was in Corinth, he was in Athens. A thousand temple prostitutes had come down from out of Ephesus, ply their trade in the streets. I don't know what he engaged in, I don't know what he did, I don't know how he screwed up. All I know is he wrote, those things I want to do, those I don't. And those things I don't want to do, those I do. What he did, I don't know. But he would say, I'm a sinner, and he would end his life in 2 Timothy by saying, I'm the chief of sinners. We're limited on time, but, but think about some of the patriarchs in the scriptures. Their final words. Jacob, he gathers his 12, he's dying and he gathers his 12 sons around him. I think that's the reason why he's dying, he had 12 sons. I've got two and I'm like ready to check out. Genesis 49, he turns to Judah, he says, you are he whom your brothers shall praise, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor shall the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. He's, he's enraptured by the Lord and he's prophesying. He's laying his hands on his kids. What a great way to die. My mother died that way. She laid her hands on each of the kids and placed a blessing on them. What a cool way to die. Just two hours before she died, her feet were doing this to New York, New York. Dun, 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 dun. And she's doing this. She got to kiss my dad goodbye and my dad had a little joke for her, which he hadn't joked in the longest time. And the thing she missed the most about my dad was his humor. I mean, it was such a cool passing. I've been by the bedside of hundreds of people who died. That was one of the coolest. And this is, this, this is, this is 
Jacob dying and he's prophesying over his kids. And then it says in verse 29 of Genesis 49, then he charged him and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah. He talks about how he wants to be buried next to, um, Rachel, or next to Leah, not Rachel. And, uh, and he says, and when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet up into the bed, breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Cool death. He finished well. Moses. Moses was dying. Deuteronomy 33 says, there's no one like God who rides the heavens to help you. And in his excellency on the clouds, the eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say destroy. And these are the words he's speaking as he's stepping into eternity. Joshua, when he was dying, he wrote, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is, this is what David is gleaning from. His life would be so effectual and these words would minister to so many people that Stephen would give an account in the book of Acts of the entirety of the Jewish nation and, and he would finally call the Jewish people a stiff-necked people because the Messiah had been presented through the line of the tribe of Judah recount, recounting Abraham and Isaac and Jacob uh, you know, through Joshua and laying it all out. And he gives this historical sermon that it blew the doors off the place and they're gnashing their teeth and they begin to, to stone him and kill him Verse 54 of Acts 7, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That was the apostle Paul. They were taking their coats off and he was like the coat check guy so they could get a good run. You can't throw something when you got big sleeves. So you take the outer coat off so you can throw that rock and really smack Stephen hard. And Saul is condoning it. Give me your coats, give me your coats. Here, get a big rock over there. I'll take your coat, go kill him. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So touched was, was Saul by, by Stephen's death. Saul was charged by, by the authorities of the Pharisees and the Sadducees to hunt down Christians and kill them. He would make them renounce their faith. He would do what ISIS does, and then he would kill them. And he's knocked off his high horse on the road to Damascus, an absolute conversion where his life is absolutely transformed, and he's loved on. A man guides him through the blindness, and, and Barnabas you know, befriends him, and, and Paul writes to Timothy, passing on this, this tradition of, 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 a, of a godly parent coming in in the absence of one. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He knows he's getting a crown of righteousness. This guy killed people. He was a bigger screw-up than David in some regards. He wasn't just a single murderer. He was an endless murderer. And he murdered God's people. He condoned the death of Stephen. 
And Stephen never died. He fell asleep, and, and the apostle Paul witnessed every bit of it, and his heart was condemned and convicted and brought him to faith. I read the article in the LA Times about the school and, and there was a, the, the author was Robin Abkarian. And the, and the article was just mean. It just wasn't nice. And she wasn't nice. And she tried to reach me and, and I was disappointed a little bit in the article. But I have to say, her writing style is captivating. I really enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy what was in it. I just liked the way it was written. And, and, and I had to just calm down. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And I just said, Lord... How do I bless her? And so I just, I just started to research her and, and see how I could minister to her. And I found out that she stands um, with the Armenian people to recognize the, the, the genocide, the Holocaust, by the Turks. And, and the LA Times has come against her and, and a number of other Armenians that are on the writing staff there. So I just wrote her and sent her a picture of Lydia Manassi and the woman who was instrumental in the formation of my faith and my mentor, Roger Manassi. And I had the picture that's in Ellis Island with her as a little girl. And, and, and that, that they, not when she was at Ellis Island, but was taken in, in, um, in Turkey, uh, Aleppo, Turkey. And, and I think it was Aleppo. I can't remember. But of the seven people in that picture, only three of them lived. The others were killed. She, she watched her mother raped. She forgave the Turks. This was a woman who embraced forgiveness, an amazing woman. And I wrote this to Robin, and I just said, you know, I love your writing style. I didn't agree with your assessment of all the, but you did try to reach out to me, and my wife this past week broke her back, and I got bad news about my sister and a number of other things. And, but thank you for trying, and I just want to say thanks for being a voice for, for these folks. And I, I just, I, life is too short to be upset with people. Get over it. Figure out something nice to say and quit harboring anger. Reach them, touch them, get into their world. I mean, Paul was writing to people who were in Caesar's household. Can you imagine what that was like having to work in Caesar's household? Do you think anybody in this church would be thrilled about the employment you have in Caesar's household, witnessing what you, oh my goodness, did you see the drunken orgy at Caesar's household? Yes, I, I, I was there. I served them. What? Do you realize what was going on? I do. It was painful. You're in Hollywood? I am. It is a tough place to be. Well, the, the church is really good at inoculating itself and hiding in the walls. And we, 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 just, we just are angry at anyone stepping into a realm to try to make a difference. And Paul was encouraging him in Caesar's household. Light it up. Go get him. So when he's saying, when David is saying, although my house is not yet so with God yet, he says, he has made with me an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. A covenant is an unbreakable promise, much like marriage, although we haven't quite <laughs> figured that out. He says, ordered in all things and secure. Now, when I say I go to the deathbed of folks, one of my favorites is I walk in and and you know that they've dismissed Christianity. They don't really want anything to do with it, but they're happy you're there because nobody else is going to visit them because their life is just self-consumed and they're dying lonely. And you walk in, I'm a good person and I have, I've done a good thing in life. I say, really? Well, okay, let's... It's a scale thing then? Yeah, yeah, okay. How's the scale balancing? Why is there nobody here? Well, I don't know what you're alluding to. You don't have any family that comes and visits. Well, I, I, I made a dip. 
you're going to stand before a holy God who has never done anything wrong in the entirety of his life, who died to save you from your sin, and you want to try to balance it? Even if it's balanced, the stuff on this side, you're not going to get away with. You, are, you, are you going to step into eternity on that? You wouldn't even get on a plane going to Hawaii that had four engines if one of them was out and there was a 10% chance that the plane would crash. You'd take another plane. Yet you're going to bank your eternity on a balanced scale before a holy God? You're dying. The clock is ticking. You've deceived yourself all these days. Listen, Jesus said, if you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue, you will be saved. I love a line that I heard recently in a movie I watched where, where that, that was presented. And they go, that's, that's too simple. It's too simple. Yes, it's simple, but it's hard. It's simple, but it's hard. Because he's made it simple, but we make it hard because we're so stinking prideful that we would hold on to our petty little lives and reject so great a salvation because we want to be captain of our domain and, and walk into a holy God with a scale. Do you know how stupid you're going to look? I'm a good person. What? I mean, how long would it take? Just pick anyone in the room. How long would it take for us to describe the miserable things that you even think in secret that God has full knowledge of? The stuff that you've done and the evil that you've perpetrated and the lives you've said. And some of you are going, well, I'm not as bad as Rob McCoy. Good, because I just want you to know I'm not the standard. If I were the standard, we'd all get in. I don't know what we meant by that. Man. The idea is this. Ordered in all things, secure. Is your faith Secure. Do you know that you're going to heaven not because of what you've done or haven't done, but because of what Christ has done for you? That's the only security in this life. And he gives you a seal, you know, like a, a wax seal on your heart called the Holy Spirit to declare, today your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. I've told you this so that you may know you have eternal life. He who has been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. You can't even remove yourself once you've placed yourself there. Otherwise, it's not eternal life. Now is it? You receive Christ's sacrifice on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sins, past, present, and future. You get off death row, and you get to live again because God gave you mercy. And all he asks of you is to love others the way he loved you. How much did he love you? This much. Spend the rest of your life serving others. What's wrong with that, and why are we so opposed to it? And David says, this is the security. And he says, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. This is what I live for. This is the left side of the wall. I want everyone to know that this is my salvation and my desire, that everyone would know the security I have in the salvation of my Savior. He's given me a lineage that'll go into eternity. And then he closes by saying, Will he not make it increase? I mean, he says, the sons of rebellion, they're going to be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. We, we, we spend such a silly amount of time running from God and we won't allow him to capture us with his hands. And you know what hands those are? The ones that have been pierced. Reaching out to you. Saying, we can be reconciled. My blood's already been poured out. All the penalty's been paid. 
Will you embrace these arms? Will you let this blood cover the multitude of your sins and let me be your savior so that you could be right with the Father? And you reject those hands. Ah, the crucifixion was a hoax. Ah, they found the tomb of Jesus. Ah, they... Thousands of years we've heard this dribble. We have the, the, the prophetic assurance of the scriptures. It's the most amazing... Transformations, testimonies of lives... The power of the word of God just tonight. I, for those of you who are doubters, I, I do this periodically and I want you to see it tonight. For those of you who either had a drug problem or a broken marriage or a bad family or just a nightmare of a life where you were on, a, on the road to hell and there's been a transformation of your life and a restoration, it's not perfect yet, but man, it is a lot better than it was. All simply because of the preaching of the word of, the God, of God and embracing Christ as your savior. Please right now, raise your hand. Okay, do you want more evidence? Is that not enough? And David says, this is my salvation. This is my desire. This is why I've lived and this is why I'm dying. And he's gonna make it increase, but he wants to contrast. And he says, now listen, the sons of rebellion will be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. God wants to extend to you his, his righteous right hand, pierced with, with the hole of, of, the, of the spike that, that was nailed to the cross. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, meaning these, these rebels. And they shall be utterly burned. You, you think county jail's bad? You, you're, you're running in rebellion to your parents. You're running in rebellion to your bosses. You're running in rebellion to your wife, your girlfriend, your, your husband, your boyfriend, whatever. And you're running in rebellion, you end up and you're in and out of jail and you're, you're going to the bail bondsman and you're struggling with drugs and you got this and you got that and you got a track record and a misery and all these things. And, and you, you just think, I am free and easy and I got life. And, and, and every now and then you get caught and you're, you're in iron bars and, and people are leading you with handcuffs and you wear an orange jumpsuit. And, 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 and he's just saying, listen, they, these kind of people can only, can only be handled with iron and a, and a, and a weapon, a spear a gun, and you think this is bad, wait till eternity, they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. You know, I don't believe in hell. We've already covered this. It, it, it's, you say, well, it, it's not fair. You know what's not fair? That anybody would even be allowed to go to heaven. That's not fair. <clears throat> You want justice? <clears throat> Nobody should get to heaven. What's fair is we all go to hell. We have committed cosmic treason against a God who created us to love him and we chose to exit his presence. You go, well, that was Adam and Eve. That wasn't my fault. You've been given his son and you've been given provision to step out of that genetic deformity and you rejected it and you mocked it. And you say, well, why should some people go to hell and some people go to heaven? Because people embraced it. Well, but they, they received it on their deathbed. That's too simple. Yeah. Could you imagine how hard that was too, though? There is a hell. Jesus spoke more of it than anyone else in the Bible because he didn't want anyone to go there. And for us to get to hell, we have to step over the cross of Christ. It's a big battleship in front of the gates of hell. And we have to step over it to enter into hell, hell ourselves and say, forget you. I don't need a savior. 
And you're going to walk into hell holding your little stupid scale. When God has given you security, he's given you a covenant, he's ordered all things, and this should be your heart's desire, and he'll increase your family. I close with this last thought. When he says, the light of the morning when the sun rises, this is the person's life. Jesus said, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root of the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. I think about being 50 and having a 16-year-old. And I think what a lousy 16-year-old I was to my 50-year-old father and how good of a son Daniel is to me. And all I can tell you is I know I don't deserve it. And I'm thankful I didn't get what I deserve. And I'm so thrilled to see how God orders life when we fear him, we respect him. And we may not always get it right, but we keep a short account and we get right back into his presence. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And every time we look, as David wrote in the sweet psalmist of Israel, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. They're the coachmen that just sweep up the mess behind you. And I, I look at up to 16 years of age, up to 22 years of age, I look at the mess and I say, but God, do you remember when? What'd you do? I cleaned it up. Do you realize what I've done with it? I've used this as an example to your son And he wants to be just like you. Only God. So, David had a lot of regrets. I know we all do. But let that word yet sink into your heart. And start living so that you're like the rising sun in the morning with the fresh grass just coming out. Be a fragrance to all around you. Fear the Lord. Honor his commandments. And watch as God just establishes a heritage that will blow your mind. And the left side of the wall is going to be the thing you're going to be most thrilled about. Amen?